The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. The scripture for this morning is found in Luke 16, 19 through 31. If you have one of the Bibles under your chairs, it's on page 876. Uh, you can, or you can follow along on the screen. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may pass from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also into this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, for if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. So, we just observed a presidential inauguration. And I know I just lost almost everybody in the room. You're like, I don't want to think about that anymore, positive or negative, but just stick with me for a second. Uh, Some of you in this room are feeling like I felt uh, tomorrow will be two weeks ago where after Clemson won, I'll just bring it up again, after Clemson won the national championship game, just for days afterwards, I was in a, a, a vague like phasey, uh, hazy fog around me where just like anything, like people cut me off in traffic and I was just like, no problem. Like life was like smiles and rainbows. And some of you, it's like, you know, if you're a Carolina fan, most of the time, and it's just like, you know, you're dealing with sadness and despair. But that we're, that's not what this is about at this point. I just want to talk about the concept of a presidential inauguration period. What happens every four years in in our country's really rather short history is we have some sort of what we call peaceful transfer of power. And that's where somebody takes uh, the Oval Office or they're reestablishing the Oval Office after winning a re-election. And in the inauguration, we are, they're swearing in for another four years and they are declaring in their inaugural address, this is who we are. 
This is who I am. This is what my administration is about. And this is what our country is going to be focusing on in the coming weeks and months and years. Again, I'm getting ready to lose some of you because you're thinking, oh, man, that's awesome. And some of you are like, oh, man, that's terrible. And stick with me. We're not talking about this year at all. Just the concept of a presidential inauguration where you're establishing, you're setting up your values, your goals, your agenda, and your ground rules. This is who we are, and this is what we're going to be about. What it is doing, what a president tries to do with their inauguration is to establish an ethos that's saying this is how we are going to think and feel about things going forward from here. Now here in Luke 16, Jesus is really doing the same thing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's taking his time traveling to Jerusalem. And on this route, he has his followers, his close followers that are with him. As he goes through different villages and towns along the way, people who are going to, coming to hear him and see, hey, I'm, I'm, am I going to follow him? Am I going to believe in Jesus, I'm going to believe he is who people are saying he is, and that's the Messiah who's come to save us. He's traveling to Jerusalem for what we're going to end up celebrating in a couple of months, Good Friday and Easter. But that's down the road. He's taking his time going along the way, and he's declaring, this is who I am, and this is what I'm about. What he, the wording that he uses a lot is he's declaring the kingdom of God. Is actually his favorite subject. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, he talks about the, the phrase, the kingdom of God, more than any other phrase or any other teaching that he covers. But the question is, and we talked about it a little bit last week, but what is the kingdom of God? If, he, if it's Jesus' favorite subject, if he's talking about it so much, if he's spending this time heading to Jerusalem, heading to the culmination of what he knows is going to be the culmination or the, the crisis, the, the whole reason he came to earth in Jerusalem, as he's going along the way and he's saying, as I'm going, I'm declaring to you the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? And our simple definition that we're using is the kingdom of God is life, that's under the rule and reign of Jesus. Life that's under the rule and reign of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at Luke 16. Uh, basically, there's, again, like last week and really this whole, the whole book, but this whole section and the book particularly, there is a lot here in Luke 16 verses 1 through 31 that I just cannot cover. We're not even going to pay much attention to verses 1 through 12, quite honestly, because I just don't have time to get there. But take the time, read it, study it. If you have questions or thoughts, bring it up in community group this week. That'd be a great place for that. But Jesus is laying out about his kingdom. He's teaching us about his kingdom, and he tells us three things in our passage today. Number one, he tells us that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of God is upside-down. Secondly, he tells us, therefore, because it's an upside-down kingdom, therefore, it's hard to enter. And then lastly, he tells us, but it's worth the effort. The kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Because of that, it's hard to enter, but it's worth the effort. Let's look first of all, the kingdom is an upside down kingdom. What he's gonna tell us is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, so there's kind of two kingdoms in the way Jesus looks at things, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is the 
Life under the rule and reign of Jesus and the kingdom of this world is life that's under the rule and reign of yourself and or Satan, the man, the, the spirit who opposes Christ. And the way he sets it up, he says the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are sort of like mirror images of each other. Do you know that, well, actually, kind of now we do because of selfies, but most of us don't really know what we look like. You know what you look like in the mirror, but that's not how you appear to people around you. I, I heard a, a podcast one time where they, they did this study about how men or people, I guess people in general, part their hair on one side or the other. Like we have a natural part, but why do you part your hair on one side or the other? And they, they studied that, they, they found out that you look better when your hair is parted on your right side but it's on the right side of how you see yourself. So a lot of people part this, their hair on the, on the right side and you look at yourself in the mirror, you say, I like the way that looks, but that's not the way people see you. People see it opposite. It's like the way you see yourself is like bizarro world. You see yourself, but you see the mirror image, the opposite of yourself. It's sort of like... Uh, I was never really hugely into comics, but when I was a younger kid, I was a little bit into comics, and I liked Superman because the other ones got a little bit too weird and for me, and I just couldn't follow along with it, but I liked Superman, and there's a character called Bizarro or Bizarro Superman, and he comes from Bizarro World, which is a mirror image world to our world. Are you guys sticking with me? You're like, you're really getting geeky, but just stick with me for a second. There's a Bizarro World. It's like the mirror image of this world, and Bizarro Superman is like Superman, but exactly opposite, if that makes any sense at all. So he's like Superman in that he has the strengths and the superpowers that, he, that Superman does, but he's not like Superman in that everything that Superman or we consider good, he considers bad, and everything we consider bad, he considers good. He comes from the bizarre world, which is like a negative world, an opposite world, a mirror image to the way that we do things. And the, the weird thing about that is, is that things are just familiar enough that you know what it is. Like you see a picture of Bizarro Superman. If you guys, anybody seen a picture or watched a movie or, you know, look all the geeks raising their hands, like of Bizarro, of Bizarro Superman, he looks enough like Superman that you know, like, kind of who he is, but he's just different enough to be grotesque. When, th when something is similar, but just different enough, it becomes grotesque to us. And that's the way that this world and the kingdom of God are to each other. The kingdom of this world looks kind of like the kingdom of God, but it's just different enough to be grotesque. Let's look at what Jesus is saying here, he's going to tell us that everything that we know about what gives us pleasure, about what gives us security, about what gives us happiness is actually turned on its head in the kingdom of God. Let's look at verse 13. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What he's telling us here, first of all, is that the kingdoms of God and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are diametrically opposed to each other. 
We're going to get to what that means a little bit more, but just to start off with what he's telling us, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are diametrically opposed to each other. There's no, no servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'd be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God of money. Many of us have experienced this deal that you can't serve two masters, right? You have two people who are in charge of you at work. You might have a... a an owner or a supervisor, and then a manager who's between you and the owner and the supervisor. And the manager who manages you every day today tells you, here's how I want things done. And the owner or, the, or the, his supervisor comes by and says, hey, no, this is the way I want things done. And so you always feel like a seesaw back and forth because like this person signing the check, but this is my immediate manager. I don't know who to please. I cannot please both of them at the same time. I can only, I'm going to have to pick one and just, I'm going to either have to pick the, the under manager and just say like, hey, if anything goes wrong and I'm blaming it on him or I'm going to go on his boss and just say, hey, he's the one signing the paychecks but I have to pick one to serve. And that's the way it is in life. There is no serving God or serving Jesus and serving yourself or this world. There's no half and half or 60-40 or 80-20. You're either serving God or you're not. It's sort of like marriage. Like there's no such thing as being 90% faithful to the person that you're married to. You're not just 10% unfaithful, you're absolutely unfaithful. There's no such thing as like stealing a little bit from somebody, you're stealing. There's no such thing as being kind of faithful to Christ. But keeping apart for yourself, for your own security, for your own pleasure, for your own comfort, but being mostly following him. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God are diametrically opposed to each other. This verse also tells us that the economies, not only the kingdoms of God are they diametrically opposed to each other, but the economies of the kingdoms of God in this world work differently. See, in this world's kingdom, In this world, you gather to get, you clutch to hold on to. In God's kingdom, you give to get. You let go to gain. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? We're gonna see an example of that at the end of this chapter. What does it profit a man if he gets everything in life that he ever dreamed of, but this life, which Scripture calls a vapor? You know what a vapor is? It's that thing that you see coming out of the freezer in a South Carolina summer day when you open it to get some ice cream out, or that's probably just me. You're probably getting some healthy fruit pop or something, but... When you open it to get some ice or ice cream or whatever out of the freezer and you see that wisp of mist that comes out of the freezer and then it's gone, scripture says that's what our life is like. It's here, but it's in the vast stream of eternity, it dissipates and disappears quickly. In this world's kingdom, you gather to get, you clutch to hold on to, but in God's kingdom, you give to get and you release to gain. 
Then look at verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What Jesus is saying here is that not only the kingdoms of the, the economies of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, not only do they work differently, but he says the values of the kingdoms are different. That the phrase here, when Luke tells us the Pharisees in verse 14, who were lovers of money, the wording there is, is really, it says that they were, they were friends of money. They were buddies with money. It may or may not mean that they were wealthy. You can be a lover of money, a friend of money, a buddy of money, and not have much in your bank account or in your wallet. But we use it, just as the Pharisees use it, to gain status with the people around them. What he's saying to the Pharisees, he's saying that they used their wealth or they used money, or what they had or didn't have or how they were going to get it as they valued it as the stat for the status that it brought with them. He's saying you are justifying yourself with how you view and use money. And most of us value what justifies us. You value what justifies your existence. If you and I were honest with ourselves, the people around us could probably tell us, what do you value? It may be money, it may not be money. It may be possessions, it may be looks, it may be fashion, it may be education, it may be uh, a particular job or career, it may be a familiar, your family association, it might be where you're from, but any of us, we put a number of things and, we, and that tells us, this is who I am. And because this is who I am, I can feel good about myself because I know I have a meter that tells me when that is high and when that is low. It's what gives me value to my life. Some of us use money for that like the Pharisees do and some of us use other things for that. Behavior of our kids, the number of our kids, the state of our marriage or the state of the relationships that we're in, how many friends we have, how many, if we're really honest with ourselves, how many likes we get on social media. There's a number of things that we place value on and it, because we use, we use those things to justify ourselves, to, to give myself, to, to, to let myself know that I have value in this world. And Jesus says that that is strong wording for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We tend to value what justifies us, but God abhors that. Because money and sex and fashion and possessions and music and movies and entertainment and food, all the things that we enjoy that we tend to career, education, to build our value around, to justify ourselves, all those were made to be good things that we use and enjoy that shows us the beauty that's found in God and we use those things to turn around and worship God with, but 
they were not made for us to build our value around them. Our value in life, what we're supposed to justify our existence with, is solely to be our relationship with God himself. The love and the value and the attention that he puts upon us is what we're supposed to derive our value from. And so every other thing, God is not anti-sex or anti-money or anti-career or anti-education. He's anti all those things when we build our value and we tend to try to justify ourselves with those things. That's when they become abhorrent or an abomination in the nostrils of God. He hates it because you were not made to find your value in those things. You were made to find your value, your justification in who he is and what he has done for you, the love and the attention, the relationship that he has with you. The values of this kingdom are different. But then what, God, what Jesus is telling us here is that the kingdom of God is actually, even though we view it as the upside down kingdom, is actually the right side up kingdom. Uh, I was Again, I was traveling with, with Dale and Keitra this week, and we were sitting in, I don't remember where we were, in a restaurant or in the, the airport, and uh, the commercial came on. Have you guys seen it? It's for the AirPods for, for Apple. And it's this man. The reason it stands out to me is because Dale, Dale fancies himself a dancer, uh, and he does have some sneaky good moves, but, but, but he fancies himself a dancer. And so whenever he sees somebody dancing, like his eyes really light up. And this man, he's dancing through the city. But what happens at the beginning of the commercial is he like walks up like this wall and he dances upside down or anti-gravity through this city. And it ends with him dancing on this roof of this uh, theater marquee and he gets to the edge and he looks over and like where we would be looking over and we'd see the ground, he's dancing upside down and he looks over and he sees the stars. Now, whether he is upside down or right side up, I don't, I don't know at that point, but we view God's kingdom as upside down because it runs counter to everything that we see around us. But God's kingdom is actually the right side up kingdom. It's his kingdom that we should find our equilibrium, or our footing on and not the kingdom of this world. Because the kingdom of this world and what it values, the way its economy works is fleeting. And even though it's contrary to often what it feels like, God's kingdom is the right side up kingdom. The kingdom of, the kingdom of God is upside down, but it's really right side up. Therefore, therefore, that's why it's hard to enter the kingdom. If the, these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of Jesus and the kingdom of this world under the rule and reign of ourselves or, and or Satan, if they are diametrically opposed to each other, then it makes sense that it's incredibly hard to change direction from one to the other. It's like, it's like being in Houston, they have a lot of roads there, like eight, 10 lane roads running in, in each direction. And it is impossible possible to change direction from one to the other while the traffic is flowing. You have to exit and you have to go around your backside to go around the other side and get the direction that you're supposed to be going. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are flowing hard in opposite directions and it's not easy to jump from one to the other. It's not easy because 
God's kingdom feels upside down to the way this kingdom works. That's what Jesus means in verse 16 when he says, the law and the prophets, that means the the writings of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets were until John. He doesn't want John the Baptist there. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. This is a weird phrase. And everyone forces his way into it. The good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. What is he saying there? First of all, he's saying that the good news is preached. What is the good news? The good news is we live in, this person's is bad news, we live in a, the true upside down kingdom that runs counter to the way that God created it to run. But the good news that Jesus came to proclaim is that, the, that God's kingdom has come. There's a way out of our upside down kingdom into the right side up kingdom. There's a way out of our way of doing things, our broken way of doing things, and the way into the kingdom. The kingdom has come. The rule and reign of Jesus has come to overtake all of this world's broken system. And don't we see the world's broken system all the time? This world's broken system results in economies that favor the rich and powerful over the poor. I read a report this week that said the, wealth, the amassed wealth, and this is not socialist or capitalist or Democrat or Republican or right or left. This is just truth that should like stand out to us. That the amassed wealth of the eight richest people in the world is greater than the lowest 60% of the world. Think about that. The billions and billions of people that make up the, low, the lowest 60% of the world, they don't have the wealth. It takes all of them together to equal the wealth of the eighth, eight richest people in the world. Our system, I'm not against amassing wealth, but we have a system that is made to favor the wealthy and the powerful over the broken. We've not found a perfect system that works. We've not found a perfect governmental system. We've not found a perfect uh, economic system. We've not found a perfect taxation system. We cannot find something that works. Everything that we find that's better than the last thing seems to be broken in some way, and that's because the people who run the systems are broken. You and I are broken. In Jesus, the rule and reign of Jesus has come and is coming in its fullness at the end of time to set right all that is wrong, to heal all that is broken. It says every tear will be wiped away. The good news of the kingdom has come. The good news is that it has come to those who need it and it has come to those who desire it. That's what he's getting at here when he says the good news has been proclaimed or preached and everyone forces his way into it. Those who recognize that they need this good news, they need things to be made right, they, they, they recognize that they are broken and this world system is broken, then when you see that, it says that you force your way into it or your, some versions say violently enter it. It means that we have to make violent decisions and don't say violent as, as force to the people around us. It's saying that to us, it feels violent to rip away from the way the, this world works and to plug ourselves into the way God's economy and God's kingdom works. It feels like ripping. It feels like death. It takes 
violent or forcible decisions and forcible actions for us to lay down our rule and reign and to submit ourselves under the rule and reign of the rightful king, the rightful Lord, Jesus. That means it's gonna take a series, or each of us, of violent, gut-wrenching decisions as to our identity. Where do we place our identity, or who are you? I went through a time in my life where I had built my sense of identity and value upon perceived giftings and teaching or leadership, and I've built up my sense of value and security and identity around that. And one day, whenever it, God <laughs> seemed to strip away any sense of value that I placed in those, I didn't know who I was anymore. Some of you have experienced that. You've placed your sense of identity or value upon your career or fortunes that you have amassed or education that you have put together or how great a mom or dad that you are. And then when those things around us crumble, we don't know who we are anymore. And when I went through that situation for myself, it felt like dying to leave behind placing my identity and value upon what I had placed it on, my own sort of sense of what my giftings and abilities were. It felt like dying because if I didn't, if I wasn't who I thought I was, I didn't know who I was anymore. If I wasn't great at teaching and I was, thought I was way better than I actually was, if I wasn't great at leading, then I didn't know who I was anymore. And for us to leave behind our building our sense of identity upon anything other than the fact that Jesus Christ died from you and died for me and made me his son and that's where my identity lies. That process is a rewarding process but it feels like death. It takes a series of violent, gut-wrenching decisions as to my value, where does my personal worth lie, about my possessions, what do I own and to what purpose do I own it? Think about that for yourself. What do you own or what do you want to own, maybe a better question, and to what purpose do you own it or do you want to own it? To say that I am no longer king or boss of, or lord of my own possessions, that Jesus Christ is lord, he's called me, he has a very different plan about what I'm to do with my money and my time and my possessions than I have, that, is a, that can be a gut-wrenching, violent decision to go through, but I have to go through that decision to find life in God's kingdom. It takes a violent, gut-wrenching decision or a series of decisions, decisions as to what, I, what my plan for my life is and what my will for my life is. If you've been around church very long, you've heard somebody say, maybe to you or around you, maybe you've said it to other people, God has a plan for your life, a great plan and a great will for your life. And that is technically true, but it's probably not what you and I picture. And if Jesus is Lord, then he gets to call the shots about what, where my life goes and what I do with it and not myself. If I'm just frankly honest with you guys, 
I would probably be doing something different than I'm doing today. I would probably be living in a different city than I am today if I got to pick my own life. But Jesus is my Lord, and he calls the shots. There is no 80-20, no 90-10, no 95-5%. And to die to my own plan, to die to my own will, feels like death. And it's painful. And only those who are so desperate, who so desperately see their need and so desperately desire to leave the broken system of the world and enter God's kingdom, only those people find their way through that decision. Now that all sounds kind of heavy and may sound kind of like bad news to you. What Jesus is offering is he is offering us unending joy. He is offering us true and deep happiness and contentment. But there is a pain in the tearing away of our false ideas of who is Lord, who's not Lord. And that's why he tells us the effort to enter that kingdom is worth it. We see that played out in this parable at the end of the chapter that Justin read for us. It says that there was a rich man, this is a parable by the way, probably not something real that happened, but there was, a, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple. Now purple, if someone was clothed in purple, that would have been his outer garments, it was incredibly pricey. I don't know fashion. He was wearing Armani, that's the only like, designer I can think of. But he was clothed in Armani every day. And fine linen, that would have been his underclothes. It would have been incredibly, incredibly expensive. He was clothed in Armani and silk. I have no idea what, the, what our modern comparison is. And at his gate, this is how rich he was. He had a gate. Some of you have gates perhaps, but I don't have any gates except like to my backyard. And that's not what he's talking about here. And at the gate of his estate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, the interesting thing here, just to put it in your cap, is that this is the only time in one of Jesus' parables does he name one of the characters. And it's interesting that he doesn't name both characters here. He just names Lazarus, the poor man who is laying at, lying at the gate of this rich man. It says he was covered with sores, verse 21, who desired to be fed, who desired doesn't say he was, but he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, in Jewish society, they say the dogs, they didn't view dogs as man's best friend. It would be sort of like saying giant rats came and licked these man's sores as he sat outside the rich man's gate. He was hungry, he was sick. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It's interesting here. It doesn't even say that the poor man was buried. It says that he died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Probably forgotten, lying there by the gate. 
Verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he, that's the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham. So this, to, to the Jews, the Abraham was the, their patriarch. He was the father of all the Jewish people. So to, to see Abraham, he represented all the Jewish people far off and that Lazarus at his side or at his bosom. And what this means is like, as we kind of seen before, when you would throw a feast, the, the person who was throwing the feast would take the person of, of greatest honor and put them at their right-hand side, and you would recline at table, and so your head would be resting basically at the bosom of the host. So Lazarus, who was forgotten, nobody paid attention to him, nobody cared for him in his affliction, nobody fed him, he was at this rich man's gate, and we think that perhaps the rich man even knew his name because he calls in a minute, he names him Lazarus. And Lazarus, who was forgotten in life, is remembered in heaven. And he's at the right hand, a place of honor with Abraham. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. This is kind of interesting. This man who was rich, who ignored Lazarus at his gate, he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus, almost like a servant still to him, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and you may not cross from there to us. We see the earthly lives of Lazarus and the rich man contrasted. Lazarus who was hungry and sick and tormented. The rich man who was clothed, who was feasted, who was happy. And then the eternal lives totally flipped. A Lazarus, Lazarus comforted in the bosom of the place of honor with Abraham. The rich man tormented and yet still prideful and still blaming. We see him blaming at the end of that whenever he says, hey, well, at least send Lazarus to my five brothers so that he can warn them not to come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, no. They have the Bible to tell them about this truth. And he says, no, if they have somebody who rises from the dead, that will convince them. It kind of makes sense to me. If Lazarus came back and rose from the dead, he'll convince them. But he's, what he's doing is he's blaming. He's saying, if you had given me more, I wouldn't have to be here. Go and give my brothers more so they won't have to come here as well. The question isn't just what does the new kingdom look like? The question is really, how do I enter it? How do I get into it? If it's the upside down kingdom or really the right side up kingdom, if it's uh, hard to enter but the effort is worth it, how do I get there? But the answer to that's even trickier than we think because you gotta think about who Jesus is talking to in this whole section. He's talking to his followers and he's talking to the Pharisees. So he's talking to religious Devout, devout or devoted people. What's tricky here is that it's hard enough to give up what you have and give it to the poor, but it's harder than that to not let money control you anymore. 
Because there's a way to keep money to yourself and find your value and justification in the money that you have in your pocket or your bank account. But you can also turn around and give that money away to the people around you who need it and find pride in that as well and value in that as well. That money can control you whether you keep it or you give it away. And it's that way with all the things that we tend to justify ourselves with and find value in in life. That's when Jesus said back in verse 16 when he said the law and the prophets were until John, but since then the good news of the kingdom is preached, the law and the prophets, what it teaches us is that our need is for a changed heart. A heart that will allow me to reject the things of this world and placing my justification and value in it and find joy in giving away. Because the joy isn't in the lack of torment. The joy is finding joy under the submission of Christ. This is interesting to me. The rich man doesn't ask Abraham to let him out of hell. He doesn't try to beg, borrow his way out of hell. C.S. Lewis said that the door to hell is locked from the inside. Nobody goes there unwilling. You go there because you would rather be, you'd rather be in torment outside the rule and reign of God than to find joy under his rule and reign and then submission to him. That's the heart change that we need. Not just to reject this world's system, this world's economy, and the way it wants to grasp things and build my identity and value around those things, but to find joy in submission to God. Verse 31, Abraham said back to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Somebody did rise from the dead, right? The truth that Jesus lived, the truth that Jesus died, the truth that he was resurrected again, which is the story of the gospel, will not be sweet to you. It will not change you. It will not change your heart until you are broken in your need. Until you come to the point where you say, my rule and reign is not working out for me. It's a dead end. And I need someone else to come in and rule my life for me. It won't change you. The truth that Jesus was born and lived and died and buried and resurrected will not be real to you, will not change your heart until you reject this world's kingdom or really your own kingdom. It will not change you until you bow to the king in grateful submission. And it will not change you until you see his death and his resurrection as yours. How do I die to this world? By accepting the fact that Jesus died to it for me. And therefore, I can bow my knee to him, accept his work on my behalf, 
and he can change my heart and enable me to find joy and submission to God's kingdom and God's rule and God's reign. No matter if everyone else around me seems to be living it up and I'm not, I can find joy that's lasting and eternal. That's been the secret to Christianity for ages. That's why Christians have been able to go to the fire singing. It's why Paul and Silas were able to be locked up in the dungeon in the middle of the night in the filthy, terrible, scary Roman dungeon and yet sing and find joy because the Christian has rejected the temporary and fleeting pleasures of this world and have found a lasting spring of eternal joy and pleasures at the right hand of God. I pray that would be the fabric of our lives. I pray that we would find joy there. That's how the Christians find joy in the midst of pain. And even in the midst of tears can know, can be content. His joy is everlasting. The world is upside down. To leave it is hard, but the effort to enter it is worth it. And it's paved for us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition into communion. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the table is open for you, no matter where you call church home. We have two lines, as Dale said. You come and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice. If this morning, if you are not a believer in Christ, maybe you've been around church a long time, but you've never bowed your knee to him. You've never rejected this world system and submitted to God's rule and reign in your life. And I pray this would be the morning that would happen. I would love to pray with you they would love to pray with you. Somebody will be back in the prayer area. They would love to pray with you. Or if you came with a friend or a family member, grab them and ask them to pray with you. I'd love for this to be the morning that you are made new when you leave the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of light, the upside down kingdom for the right side up kingdom. And though it may feel like you're leaving what you had always found your security and value in, that you would find true and lasting security and value. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's enjoy that as we partake of communion. Father, I thank you for your rule and reign. I thank you that it is lasting, that it is never ending, that it is there under your rule and under your reign that we can find joy and happiness that never ends. Father, I pray that you'd make us into a people, that you'd make each of us into a person who finds joy in submission to you that enables us to live a totally upside-down kingdom where we don't clutch and hold on to, we let go. We can give of our time and energy and attention and money and possessions freely 
because we found the greatest treasure of all. And it's in your son's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.